Let's pray together. Father, we treasure your word because it tells us about you, the infinite one, and communicates to us in ways we can understand so that we can know more of who you are and be drawn to you all the more closely. And so, Father, as we hear your word today, I pray that you would speak to us through it, and I pray that we would be responsive to it, that you might use it to transform our lives, that we might be a people to declare your praises and to be a witness to others who need to hear of the Savior as well. So use your word, Father, in our lives, and I pray that you would help us to apply it as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in a series on the book of Ezra these days, and I'm calling it uh, Building a Community of Faith because that's really what the exiles were doing as they came back to Jerusalem. Uh, they came back under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. Came, uh, Ezra then came to help rebuild the community itself. And uh, we're trying to build more of a community of faith here. Just by way of reminder, Ezra was uh, written as volume one of a two-volume set, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we are going through Ezra now, and we will plan on picking up in the book of Nehemiah in a few weeks. Key players, Zerubbabel, who was a leader and a builder who rebuilt the temple, and he is essentially the subject of Ezra chapters one through six. Second key player, Ezra, who was a historian and a priest, and uh, he came to build the community around the word of God. He shows up in Ezra seven, some 60 years after Zerubbabel. And then finally, the, the third key player is Nehemiah, who was a leader, and he came back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem that had been torn down. Uh, a destruction to told about in Ezra chapter 4 that we touched on briefly last week. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go today. So we started this series, we're, we're in week four today, we started week one talking about God's sovereignty and how he is in charge of even the most challenging moments of our lives and can turn what we thought was the worst thing that ever happened to us into what we would consider the best thing that ever happened to us. In the second week, we went on to see how we were made for worship, to be in a relationship with God and to worship him as a response to all he's done for us, and to do that with our whole life. Worship isn't just for Sunday mornings, it's a whole life thing as we respond to the, the grace of God. Then last week we saw how dangerous compromise can be, and how following Christ means we don't compromise on matters of obedience to God. So today what we want to do is to think about God's justice, and to get a glimpse of how our sovereign God can turn the tables on those who oppose his ways and who oppose his people. So on the news this week, uh, a brief article 
about uh, movie theaters trying to reclaim some market share after the COVID experience. And so I saw that uh, all over our area yesterday, movie theaters were offering special deal. Uh, you could see any movie for three bucks. I don't know if any of you got out and enjoyed that yesterday. I see one. So $3, just, just trying to refill theaters once again. I haven't thought about going to a theater in a couple of years. You know, so they're trying real hard to refill them. Now, whether we go to a movie or stream one online, Tina and I have a foolproof method for picking good movies. If the critics liked it, we avoid it. That's, <laughs> that's our method. And, and if the critics call it predictable... We put that at the head of our list of movies to see. Because predictable to them means the good guys win and the bad guys lose. We like predictable. We like to see the good guys win and the bad guys lose. From Snow White to Jack Ryan, we like to see goodness upheld and evil defeated. We have a term for it. It's called poetic justice, right? When the good guys win and the bad guys lose. We have a term for it in our culture today. What goes around, what? Comes around. We all know the term. That's about poetic justice. David spoke about it in the Psalms. In Psalm 7, verse 15, he said, He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His smart son, Solomon, wrote about it in Proverbs, Proverbs 26, verse 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Now, why is that true? Why is it that what goes around comes around? It's because we live in a moral universe governed by a sovereign God. He is in control. Evil will not have the final say. God has reserved the final say for himself. And every now and then, we get a reminder of that fact. And it encourages us when we are tempted to think that the bad guys are winning. Our scripture passage today shows us how God reminds his people of this truth. They started to rebuild the temple when they came back to Jerusalem from exile. But they ran into some pretty stiff opposition. Last week we saw this uh, opposition in the form of what, what I call the local mafia, 6th uh, century B.C. mafia, that offered, more than offered, to help. They said, we will help. We are going to be a part of this and what we found out about them was they were idol worshipers and they wanted to build idol worship into the very design of the temple. And so Zerubbabel turned them down cold. And as he did that, he made enemies of them. And so they were stirred up and made the people afraid to build. That's what it tells us in Ezra chapter 4, verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And what followed was a 16-year period where there was no progress in the rebuilding of the temple. 
For 16 years, the project lay idle. And when they tried to get it going again, the opposition was quick to respond, as we're going to see today. But God was to have the last word. And it would be even better than his people would have imagined it could be. So the storyline for Ezra chapters 5 and 6 is really pretty simple. God's people step out, opposing forces step up, and God steps in. Let's take a a look at this. First, God's people step out. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Ezra chapter 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. God's people step out. They step out in faith. The prophets send their message, Haggai and Zechariah. They were contemporaries. They were very different, though, from one another. Haggai was very simple, very forthright. You might even call him blunt. Uh, And so he says this in Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people would be the people who have come back to resettle Jerusalem. Not time yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? He's direct. He's blunt. Haggai condemned the people for their messed up priorities. One of the things they had done was they had taken the cedar that was coming down from Tyre and Sidon to rebuild the temple, they had taken it and used it to make wood paneling for their houses. He says, is it a time for you to live in your paneled houses while this temple lies in ruin? Zechariah, on the other hand, was a bit more of a mystic. We heard some from his prophecy this morning, and it sounds kind of mystical. He told of strange visions that he saw Visions that contained God's truth for his people. And so in Zechariah 4, verses 9 and 10, it says this, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation for this house. His hands shall also complete it. In other words, it's going to happen. God is in it. It will take place. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. You hear what the prophets are saying here? It's time. It's time to rebuild the temple. And it hasn't been built to this point because your priorities are messed up. So get going. God is in it. It's time to get moving. Well, the message of the prophets got through and the people resumed the building. They stepped out in faith responding to what the prophets had to say. Now, let's put ourselves for a moment in the place of those people in that day. 
we've got our paneled housing we're living in, you know, and everything's going fine. And we think, well, you know, the temple can wait. And then these two guys rebuke us. How do we respond? What do you do when somebody rebukes you? Do you say, thanks, I needed that. I, I need to do something about that thing. You've pointed out something I need to pay attention to. We say that. Or do we say, who do you think you are telling me what to do? I'll have to admit, I, I don't like being rebuked. I don't like it. I don't tend to receive it all that well. It doesn't mean I don't need one from time to time. I do. What I need to do is be open to receiving one. Anybody identify with that? When I look at a model for how to respond to rebuke, I look at King David. Remember the time the prophet Nathan confronted him? Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, after his adultery with Bathsheba, after his murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite, Nathan comes to him and he tells him a story. A story about a rich man who had flocks and herds, all kinds of animals. And he gets a guest in his home and he takes the lamb of his next door neighbor and it's the only lamb this guy has, and it's a pet to him. And he takes the neighbor's little lamb and he butchers it to make a meal for his house guest. And David listens to this story and he is incensed. And he says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. How does David respond to the rebuke? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned. I'm guilty. I, I deserved what you just said. Now, we commend David for responding humbly to the rebuke, but you've got to admit that rebuke was really well delivered. I mean, Nathan set him up perfectly for the whole thing. It was much better than another rebuke David received just four chapters later. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, the setting is Absalom's rebellion. David's handsome son Absalom turns the hearts of the people uh, toward him against his father David and declares himself king. And so David packs up and starts to leave Jerusalem. And then somebody shows up. His name is Shimei. Shimei. And Shimei shows up and pelts David and his companions with stones, showers them with dirt as they're passing by, calls down curses on David and says, you are getting exactly what you deserve from the hand of your son Absalom. General Abishai is with him and offers to cut off Shimei's head. You see him kind of reaching for his sword there in the picture. It's a nice offer. If you or I were David, we might take him up on it. But David says, no, let him curse. It could be that God has a message for me from him. 
That's quite a humble response to a rebuke. Sometimes we get a rebuke that isn't delivered all that well. Sometimes we get more Shimei than Nathan. But can we have the wisdom to look for what God is communicating to us through that, despite who the messenger might be or how poorly the message might be delivered? Well, the exiles responded well to the rebukes of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. They stepped out in faith and they started rebuilding the temple. And as soon as they stepped out, the opposition stepped up. And that brings us to point two. The opposing forces step up. Look at verses three through five of chapter five. At the same time, Tetenai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. God's people step out in faith, and the opposing forces step up. They try to stop the rebuilding of the temple. Just when you think the settlers are about to make some progress, someone comes along to try to stop it. And they do so by sending a letter to King Darius, the king of Persia. And the contents of that letter are in verses 7 through 17. I'm not going to read that to you right now. We'll just kind of sum it up a bit. Now, if we were to back up to chapter 4 that we looked at last week, we would see Ezra telling us about three other letters. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll confuse all of these letters that are going around. But Ezra actually marks them off very well by talking about who is in power, who is the king of Persia at the time each of the letters is written. So in chapter 4, the king of Persia is Ahasuerus, known better perhaps as Xerxes, and also Artaxerxes, who followed him in the mid-400s BC. Chapter 5 now, the king of Persia who's receiving this letter is Darius, and it's about 50 years earlier. Not later, but earlier So why tell us about these other letters in chapter 4, which actually happened after the events of chapter 5? It's because it tells us about a time that the reader would know about when the bad guys won. Let's get another look at the chart I showed you last week. You can see on the left-hand side of the chart, there are five Persian kings three of whom factor into the story. Cyrus, who decreed that the exiles in Babylon could return to Jerusalem. Darius, uh, who um, was the the king um, when uh, the project uh, for the the temple was, was halted, time of Haggai and Zechariah also king when the project was resumed and 
and the temple was completed. And then finally, Artaxerxes uh, is the third one who factors into the story uh, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So on the right-hand side of the chart, we have uh, what's going on essentially in Jerusalem. And we see three movements there. The first one under Zerubbabel, he goes back to Jerusalem around 538 BC when Cyrus sends them back. And he's on the scene, Zerubbabel is, through the whole thing, laying the foundation of the temple, 16-year work stoppage, rebuke from the prophets, and the completion of the temple. Second movement is under Ezra. He goes back to Jerusalem almost 60 years later in 458 B.C. during the reign of Artaxerxes, and he rebuilds the community of faith around the Word of God. It's in this time that Artaxerxes gets a letter asking him to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem and he authorizes the opposition to stop it. So the rebuilding of the city stops, but the opposition goes way beyond stopping the work. What they actually do is they demolish the walls and burn the gates. That is the mess that Nehemiah hears about at the beginning of his book, and it prompts him to ask the king to send him back to rebuild his city. And the king that he is asking for permission to go back and rebuild the city is the very king who gave permission to stop the work. Permission that ultimately led to these people destroying the wall and burning the gates. But that's the book of Nehemiah, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. Third movement is under Nehemiah. He goes back to Jerusalem in 445, also in the reign of Artaxerxes, to rebuild the walls. So there's the context. Now, back to our story. Ezra wants to describe what it was like to have that kind of opposition, asking the king to stop the work on the temple. So he invites his readers to think about something they were familiar with, something that would have been recent history to them. They're living in the shadow of the time when the bad guys won, when the bad guys destroyed the city walls. He writes from that perspective to help his readers understand what was at stake in the time of Zerubbabel when the opposition wanted to stop the construction of the temple. So, next slide, if you would. He's, he's writing on the far side of the right side, writing about these other events in 433 BC. He's writing about the time, 536, when the bad guys tried to stop the rebuilding of the temple, and he's writing it through the lens of the time the bad guys succeeded under Artaxerxes in 455. Does that help? Does that help? Let me, let me bring it a little more contemporary for us. Next slide up. If I were to want to give a lecture on the invasion of Poland in 1939 by Hitler, I might start with a contemporary illustration. Who remembers the invasion of Ukraine by the, by the Russians? Hopefully all of us do, right? It was seven months ago. If, if I were to frame things in terms of this event that we are familiar with, 
we might better understand one that we have only heard about. We haven't experienced, we haven't seen it. So I could maybe show some slides and that sort of thing from the invasion of Ukraine and then say, let me bridge back to a time further back in history when another invasion took place, one of Poland by Hitler, 1939. And you'd see the older event in light of the more recent event that you're actually familiar with. So in the same way, Ezra reminds these people of something they're all aware of as he describes an event that took place 50 years earlier. You think Ezra would have gotten their attention by doing it that way? You think that the people could maybe relate to what Zerubbabel was facing when these people wanted to stop the temple project? So Ezra tells his readers about it to let them know what the bad guys were willing to do to stop the project, and to show what could have happened if they succeeded. The opposing forces were stepping up. Now, one thing that we can count on ourselves when we step out in faith and do what God has called us to do is that we'll experience opposition. It's going to happen. When the kingdom of God advances, Satan is troubled. There is a false gospel out today, though, that suggests if you're a Christian, your life should be smooth, and your family should be healthy, and your bank account should be growing. And I'd like to know where they got that idea, because they didn't get it from reading the New Testament. If you were a believer in New Testament times and you weren't experiencing opposition, something was haywire. They all got opposition. If you're breaking down the bars of Satan's empire and setting his captives free, he's going to try to make the way really hard for you. If things are going smoothly in your life, you might want to ask yourself, what am I doing to upset Satan's apple cart? Anything at all? When you are serving the purposes of the kingdom of God, you can expect some opposition. But you can also claim that greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. God's cause will prevail. And it's at the point of this opposition where we see God step in. So God's people step out in faith. The opposition steps up. And now, point three, God steps in. And that really is the subject of all of chapter 6. We see hints of God's involvement throughout the whole story. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, The God of Israel was over them. He's there. He's still in charge. He's still in control. Chapter 5, verse 5 says, The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. He's watching this. None of this is escaping his notice. And now we see God step onto the stage and turn things around. In chapter 4, we saw how the bad guys stopped construction during the reign of Artaxerxes in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Artaxerxes gets a letter from the opposition, does a quick document scan, orders the stoppage of the construction project, but the opposition does more than just stop the construction project. They demolish the wall and burn the gates, and that's the news that Nehemiah gets at the start of his book that we'll look at in a few weeks. Now in chapter six, what we see 
is that what they were trying to do during the reign of King Darius around 520 BC was essentially the same thing. Now, Ezra's readers are well aware of the time the bad guys won. It was pretty much recent history for them. And they hear about a time the bad guys tried stopping the rebuilding of the temple. Many of them lived through this more recent time when the bad guys destroyed the walls of the city. Only now, the king that's getting a letter is Darius that, that Ezra's talking about. Further back, 50 years in time. And Darius receives the letter. He searches the records, goes all the way back to Cyrus and finds out not only that Cyrus has authorized the rebuilding of the temple when he sent the Jews back, but that he also directed that his government should pay for it. So take a look at Cyrus's decree with me. Look at chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored." And brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Can you imagine the look on the faces of the opposition when they hear this decree? Let the temple be rebuilt. My government's going to pay for it. But it gets even better than that. The letter from Darius goes on, verses 6 and 7. Now therefore, Tetenai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. So not only have they been authorized to rebuild it, these guys are now being told, stay away. Keep your hands off of them. It goes on. Look at 8 through 10. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. What is Tetenai the governor of? The province beyond the river. It's coming from your funds. Whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So the money for this project is coming out of my government, but it's coming out of your territory. You're going to fund this thing. 
that you tried to stop. And verses 11 and 12 takes it a step further. Take a look. Also, another translation says, furthermore, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Isn't that amazing? Don't you love it when the good guys win and the bad guys get what's coming to them? What went around came around. The people who dug a hole and scooped it out fell into the pit that they had made. Why? Because we live in a moral universe governed by a sovereign God. He gives us enough reminders to know that he is in control. Evil will not have the final say. And we can find encouragement in that assurance when things seem to be going badly in our own lives. The epilogue to the story comes in verses 13 to 22 of chapter 6. I won't read that either. You can look that up for yourselves. But the temple is completed then, and there is a dedication ceremony for it. It involves the sacrifice of a hundred bulls. That's a lot of bulls. That's a lot of beef. There's the sacrifice of 200 rams. That's a lot of rams. The sacrifice of 400 lambs. It's a lot of lambs. And then it mentions the sacrifice of 12 goats. Now you've just mentioned all these hundreds of animals. Why mention 12 goats? Well, the number is symbolic. There is one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Not just the two remaining tribes living in the kingdom of Judah that they're now reoccupying. A little bit of history. In 1 Kings chapter 12, Solomon's idiotic son Rehoboam tries to be harsh with the people and they say, we're out of here. And 10 tribes break off the 10 tribes of the north and they go their own way under a man named Jeroboam. And Rehoboam gets to rule over just two tribes in Jerusalem, Benjamin and Judah. They're known as the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. And what Jeroboam does up north among the ten tribes of the northern kingdom is he fires all the priests and Levites, and he replaces them all. But what we're told in 2 Chronicles 11 is that faithful priests and Levites from all the tribes, come and present themselves in Jerusalem. They're there. They're in Jerusalem ministering in the temple until the time the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and took them into exile. And now they're coming back. All 12 tribes are represented. That's why there are 12 goats who are sacrificed. They represent all 12 tribes. And together, they celebrate the Passover. The celebration includes all who committed themselves to following the Lord. And who would have guessed just a year earlier that any of that would have happened? 
It brings us back to God's sovereignty. His purposes can't be thwarted. Job said it well in Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Doesn't always seem that way to us, though, does it? Doesn't it seem sometimes like God's purposes are being thwarted even in our own time? One of the psalmists saw that, wrote about it in Psalm 73. He sees uh, the bad guys winning. He envies the wicked. And he envied them up until the point, it says, where he entered the sanctuary of God and understood their final destiny. When he saw things from that perspective, he realized there was nothing about the wicked that he should envy. Just like in today's text, it's a matter of timing. The solution we're looking for may not come today. May not come this week or this month, may not come this year, may not come in our lifetime, but it will come. We can't always understand God's timing, but we always can trust in Him. He's in control, and we can rest in that assurance. And the longer I walk with Him, the more I am willing to trust His timetable and not my own. So, how about you? Can you trust Him? Can you trust him to be the sovereign Lord of your own life, even when it seems like the bad guys are getting ahead? Can you follow him even when you're not certain of the outcome because you trust him? That, I believe, is the lesson we need to take home today from Ezra 5 and 6. God is in control and we can trust him. I would suppose the time when he looked most out of control was when Jesus went to the cross. If ever it looked like Satan was winning, it was then. The sky turned black at midday, and on the cross, the hope of the world died. Satan must have done a victory dance, but on the third day, God ended Satan's celebration, and what looked like Satan's biggest victory became his undoing. Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father, trusting him for the final outcome. And in his obedience, he dealt once and for all with our sin. That's the subject of the catechism question with the children this morning. He dealt with it once and for all. He took our place. Our sin was nailed to the cross in the person of Jesus. And in him, we are forgiven. So two questions. Have you trusted in him? Have you trusted in him for your salvation to do for you what you could never do for yourself? Take your place to pay for your sin in full. Question two, are you trusting in him? The one who is in control, even when it seems like maybe he's not, we can trust him because we are living in a moral universe governed by a sovereign God. He will have his way, and he will have the victory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that when it seems that evil is triumphing, we can still trust in you because we know that you will have the final word 
We trust you as the sovereign God of the universe who orchestrates all things for our ultimate good and for your glory. And so we submit ourselves to you and we trust in you. Help us, Father, to trust even when things seem stacked against us. Help us to know that you're in control working out your purposes and the end result will be glorious and you'll receive the praise and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen.